How blessed we are yet again this afternoon to have been privileged to come together even as we are now. Perhaps the words of the psalmist in Psalm 136 verse 1 could well express our sense of thankfulness and gratitude as it expresses the very goodness of God toward us in allowing us the opportunity to come together tonight. Indeed, as we are appreciative of that event and that opportunity, we'll again look into the book of Revelation this evening. And as you can see by the wall to my left, to your right, it'll have to do with the 22nd installment in this series of studies, having arrived now to the conclusion of chapter 20 in this book. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 shall be our text tonight. I'd invite you to turn there with me as we prepare to take a rather concerted and detailed look at that series of passages. First, by way of a brief summary or review, We should remember that we studied the first ten verses of that chapter last Lord's Day evening, and we saw that rather sadly and also tragically. This is one of the most misunderstood and one of the most misinterpreted chapters it would seem in the entire book. And in the course of that study, we saw that there were four dramatic events portrayed. One was the binding of Satan, the absolute character of the restriction of his efforts and labors, and we quickly appreciated that our Savior was able to accomplish such even during his time period here. But in addition, in verses 4 through 6, the reign of those that are his saints. We next saw in verse number 10, the end or fate of the dragon, if you will, the devil. Tonight, that leaves us with the final section of this chapter, verses 11 through 15. In looking very interesting at that section, there is really little doubt as to what is set before us, namely a rather vivid, a rather graphic, a rather overwhelming scene of the Day of Judgment. And for that reason, that was the title of this evening's lesson, The Day of Judgment. As often as we seem to encounter that idea and event throughout the Scriptures, it nonetheless is a rather dramatic thing when we read it in such detail listed here, especially when we recollect the context of those chapters that preceded it and with the knowledge of those two that will follow it. It is such an incredibly amazing thing of which we're able to read. With that said, let us then read verse number 11, taking it by itself at least for the first element of our lesson this evening, Revelation 20, verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. What did John see? We have frequently made note that this is as much as any other book in the entire New Testament, a visualization. It is to be imagined. John, what you see, write in a book, Revelation 1.11. Here John says, I saw, verse 11, a great white throne. However, it was not an abdicated throne. That is to say, it was not a throne with no one on it. He said, I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, and what's more, from whose faith face, the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. To contemplate some of the great teachings to be found within that verse alone, I have listed a few notes just to prod us in thinking in that direction. The first note might, we to, might be to place this in the very context of what it was that was just before it, and again, what it shall be that is shortly yet to come. First, John previously had seen the end, the absolute end of a number of entities that had been rather significant ones in this book, like the beast, like the dragon. Notice in verse 10 that we used to close the lesson last week, 
the devil by this point cast into the lake burning with fire and brimstone. In chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was already there as well as the false prophet. Here we've already noted then the end of these gigantic figures, these that have had the disastrous way of leading many into falsehood and error. And notice with them all gone, there is yet the final disposition of those ordinary ones, if you will, such as yourself and myself. What shall be the lot with these? We seem to easily see a throne. We see a scene of judgment. John saw a great white throne, but there was one on it. Notice also the second note. What was it about this throne? It was great and it was white. The word great implies it was momentous. This was a time of tremendous moment. It was a scene that carried with it tremendous significance both for the time being and for the being thereafter. Notice it was white. The word white has often in the book of Revelation conveyed to us the scene of purity and gloriousness. In chapter 4, we remember there the whiteness that was seen was amazing in that to those churches, the seven that were there listed. To one of them it was said, if you shall overcome, you will be given a white piece of linen. Notice furthermore, the whiteness to be seen in Revelation 19. What kind of clothing, garments did they wear who followed the Savior and who were thus blessed with Him? They were wearing white. This throne is said to have been white. As John saw this great white throne, thus we note again the purity of the Lord's judgment. God shall not make any mistakes in the judgment that He renders. He shall not, in fact, acquit anyone who needs not to be acquitted. And in consideration of those events, the gloriousness, the whiteness, the purity to be seen is a comfort to all those prepared for the character of the judgment. But oh, how disastrous it shall be for those who have not made themselves ready for that event. In addition, note something else in that same verse. It is noted also for us, who is on this throne? Now, the very name and word is not expressly found here. You and I, though, have often seen it throughout this book. Who is it in the mind of those first century saints? Who did they need to be reminded was still on his throne? Who had never abdicated, had never given the reins and the delegation and jurisdiction to another? We've often seen the testimony of God Himself with still the overruling power and that His will shall be accomplished. We've seen the greatness of the Savior and the fact that earlier in this chapter it is said that they would reign with Him. If they reign with Him, He must have still been in control. He must have still been the one who was carrying forth His will and power. We might easily consider some of those other passages that help us remember. In John 5 verse 22, we remember that all judgment God had given to the Son. And might we recall in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 that marvelous statement by Paul to that very same effect. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Reminding us that there shall come a time in which a judgment shall take place. We might do well to pause just for a moment and reflect that's quite often, at least in the world in which we live, the concept of judgment is not a terribly favorable one. It seems so much more comfortable for so many to live life however they may desire. 
Perhaps they may feel as though they are good enough and they trust that that shall be sufficient and that that shall be adequate. However, not recognizing the fact that they shall stand before the august presence of the awesome judge of all eternity and give accounting for that which they've transpired in their life. And as we shall see in just a moment, it'll not be an arbitrary judgment. There's a standard by which each shall be judged. Perhaps our final remark from this opening verse, what is said about the heaven and the earth? It says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. It is to be noted very carefully and also rather directly that we here see one of those other references to the fact that the heaven and the earth are not going to remain perpetually. Once our Savior returns, the purpose for this earth is no more. It was pur purposely created to be inhabited, Isaiah 45, 18. And once the Savior returns, this place is not to be inhabited any longer. Peter reminded us it'll be burned up, not only earth, but the entire physical universe, even down to the elemental constituents of them. Here, the earth and the heaven fled away. Doesn't that remind us of the Hebrew writer's affirmation, Hebrews 1, 12, that the very heavens themselves shall be rolled up like a garment? As you and I would roll up a coat and put it in our closet, so too shall the heavens be. That's a quotation from the 102nd Psalm. And in both of those places, we are marvelously reminded that there is a far greater one in control of this earthly domain. And when the proper time comes for its dissolution, it shall be dissolved. The earth and the heaven indeed fled away. But John saw even more than this. Consider an artist's rendition. This great white throne that John was privileged to see, this is one artist's picture of it. Notice the greatness and the sparkling character of the radiance to be seen therein. But quickly might we move to verse number 12. What else did John in fact see? Let us read verse number 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. John, what you see, write in a book. John, what did you see? Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Stand before the throne, as the American Standard Translation renders it. And not only did they stand there, John said, I saw books, not singular, plural. I saw books open, and what's more, those that were dead were judged out of or based on the contents of the books according to their works. Oh, what a breathtaking scene. What a scene in which our mind reverberates with greatness in consideration of this tremendously great event. Consider some notes concerning this idea as well. First of all, as the verse opens, John, what did you see? I saw the dead, small and great. That doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone shall be present. We're reminded yet again that this occasion of judgment is one in which there shall be no absences. Quite often we might be aware that in terms of the activities of this earth, one may be excused from various activities. If Putnam County's particular individuals call and request your presence on a jury, if you have acceptable reasons, you can be excused from that, from that duty and that responsibility. 
a student who has an exam scheduled for a given day, perhaps due to sickness or other events, the exam might be postponed for that student. May we understand very clearly and proclaim it loudly to the world, there shall be no excuses, for there shall be no absences at the day of judgment. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. As we appreciate the thoroughness that each one is there, might we remember the Savior stated something similarly in the 25th chapter of Matthew. In verses 31 to 46 of that chapter, He spoke rather directly about the scene of the judgment. But in verse 32, when He spoke about those that would be there, He said, All nations shall be gathered. There shall be no one exempted. In consideration of that event, what was it Paul reminded the Romans of in Romans 14, 12? So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Note the singular nature of the pronoun, himself. We each must stand there by ourselves and give an account for the thoroughness and greatness of the life or the failure thereof. Notice also another note to be seen. Verse 12, the books were opened. What books were these? It may be that we've each often wondered and pondered about what books these were that were opened at the character of the judgment. The scriptures give us several hints and indications about what these books were. Our lesson tonight shall not allow us the fullness to look at all of the various books, but may I suggest that we certainly know at least three of them. That's not to say there aren't others that shall be, but consider these with me. As I've listed on the screen to my left, what about those that lived under the patriarchal dispensation? By what shall they be judged? Shall they be judged by the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that which you and I call the New Testament? Well, of course not. They lived and died long before Jesus ever came and brought the gospel into the fullness of its ministration. What about those that lived under the days of the law of Moses? Shall they be judged according to the patriarchal law, or shall they be judged according to the nature of the gospel? Well, of course not. Can we not then appreciate that each shall be judged according to the spiritual law in effect at the time that person lived? And so we know at least three considerations of books. The gospel shall be open for you and myself and all others living in this era. But those that lived under the law of Moses and were subject to it shall have the book of the law of Moses opened, and by that law they shall be judged. Or what about those that lived under the patriarchal dispensation, such as Adam and Abraham himself and Noah and others? They shall be judged in accordance to that law. Certainly among the three books, we can easily appreciate these. The books indeed were opened. But even that isn't all that is there noted for us. For there is a special notice made of one book. In addition to these books, he says, and another book was opened. We can imagine that those who first heard this book read in their hearing in the first century were so interested and anxious, what other book must it have been? And then John leaves us not to doubt. For he says, which is the book of life? Oh, the wonder of that book of life. It is mentioned more than once in the sacred pages of the Word of God, and each time it is referenced, we are enthralled at considering the nature of it. Perhaps most directly we first seem to see it in Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33, when even there the great man Moses makes note of it, when he says there that there is a book in which the names of those who have not sinned against God, their names are found there.
later do we not see in Malachi 3 verse 16, closing book to the Old Testament. One more time, God says, There is a book of remembrance in which the names of my precious and chosen faithful are written. It practically brings a tear to the eye to read how God describes it in Malachi. For he contrasts it so beautifully and powerfully to those whose names are not there. But then he so quickly calls those whose names are there his precious jewels. You and I are precious jewels to God if our names are in that book. Finally, we see it also in Philippians 4 verse 3. Notice here that as Paul made note of it to the church in Philippi, how glorious is that book, for Paul noted many of his fellow laborers in Philippi had their names written in that book. To, very, to think even about the nature of that book of life reminds us that as we shall see here, though we shall readdress it in just a moment, would you go ahead and read with me verse 15 to gain an increased appreciation for this book? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. To have one's name in the book of life is the single greatest place that name could ever be written. You see, there are many places in life that our name might well be penned, and it may do so with great honor and respect as on a marriage certificate or on a birth certificate. But may I suggest that, in fact, the book of life is by far the grandest place that your name and mine could ever by itself be penned for what a great thing eternally that shall mean to have one's name written in the book of life. Notice also from verse number 12, as the verse closes, another two significant things are noted. These were judged out of those things which were written in the books. So we quickly learned that then those books that were open contained the standard of judgment by which the various individuals were therein judged. That's how we can appreciate that it must have included the gospel era judgment, the law contained therein, the law of Moses as well, as well as the patriarchal one. But notice that it says according to their works, the last four words of the verse. That is to say, the works of the individual's lives were judged in comparison to the standards set forth in those books, and by that fact they were judged as appropriate and pleasing or as inappropriate and therefore displeasing. We notice then that God's judgment is not arbitrary. It is as though we already know what's going to be on the test. This is it. At school, students are always interested. Let me know what's on the test. Give me a study guide so I know how to prepare. God hadn't left us without a study guide. The study guide is already here. It's in my hand and yours. And in this era in which we live, this is the very standard by which you and I should be judged. Thus, there should be no surprises on that day. We should know fully well what's coming and ought to have so organized and orchestrated our life to be perfectly in harmony with it. If we turn out to be unfavorable, it shall not be the fault of heaven. For heaven gave the precious price of its Son, and also gave us His precious Word, John 12, verse 49. No wonder Jesus could, thus could say in John 12, verse 48, just one verse earlier, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. It is an interesting thing to consider how that the words of judgment shall be according to the very standard by which this gospel has set that forth for you and me. Looking then at some of these 
considerations, notice yet another picture, if you would. The books were opened. In this particular artist's rendition, he drew these as scrolls, and he drew several of them, as you can see. The books were opened, affirming the character of the grandness and the absolute nature of this judgment. But let us look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. As this verse proceeds rather quickly, we notice again it states something extremely appealing, extremely interesting to us. Notice with me in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Furthermore, we notice in that verse that death and Hades gave up the entirety of their occupants. And finally, as the verse closes, we see again that they were given up for the purpose of judgment and all were judged according to their works. Would you consider with me some notes or observations about this as well? Notice as the verse begins, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. We've already noticed in verse 12, the dead, both small and great, appeared here. We seem to see again this emphasis upon death. It is a certain appointment, isn't it? Our common experience testifies to that fact, but so too does the Word of God. Throughout the Old and New Testaments alike, we are reminded that our sojourn here in the flesh is but temporary. It is but a little while. Did we not learn early on in marvelous passages such as Genesis 3 verse 19 in which God on that occasion said to Adam, By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the dust, for out of it wast thou taken. You see, Adam was made from that dust, and to it God said he would return. That is to say, he would pass from this life in terms of the physical well-being thereof. What is it that David exclaimed as he approached the end of his own physical life? In 1 Kings 2 verse 2 he said, I go the way of all the earth. David well knew that he was passing from this life and to this life he would not return in the flesh. The Hebrew writer perhaps summarized it most directly. For he said, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. That certain appointment of death. We are thus constantly warned to make ready for that event. We do not know when our own death shall come, and we do not know when the Savior shall return. But we notice here that the sea gave up the dead which were in it. As certain as death is, we do not know the means by which it comes. There are some who pass from this life very naturally by virtue of old age. There are others who pass from it by virtue of an accident on land. Others, by way of an accident in the air. Yet others, an accident at sea. Maybe others, it's a very disastrous and debilitating disease. None of us know the answer to that, perhaps, but this much we know. Verse 13 of Revelation 20 says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And in addition to that, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. That which is described before us, is simply a grand and glorious resurrection. Let's see if we can look at that more interestingly and piece these things together. First of all, when it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and when it says that death delivered up the dead which were in them, we have reference, so at least on that word, to a grave, to a repository in which a physical body has been placed. 
But notice that isn't all that's here listed for the word hell is present. In the Greek, that is the word Hades. And thus you and I, perhaps, if we're of habit to make note of that in our Bible, it might be wise to do that. Our translators that produced the King James Version uniformly use the word hell. And in all the places that occurs, it does not refer to that eternally final place that we would call a lake of fire and brimstone. There are times it means Hades as it does here. What is Hades? In James 2 verse 26, we have a monumental evidence to the fact of how we interpret this. We know that at the time we die, that you and I are such that that immortal part of us departs the body. Notice that you and I are comprised of body, soul, and spirit. That immortal spirit that is you and me. That thing that is which you and I are made in the very image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.26. At the time of our death, James says that spirit departs the body. It leaves behind a lifeless corpse. It leaves behind this matter which is then placed in the bosom of the earth. However, that spirit is still alive and well somewhere. It's not here in the flesh. It's dwelling in a place called Hades. The word Hades simply means the receptacle of disembodied spirits. It simply means the abode of those spirits that have left the bodies. There is a place called Hades. It is described rather powerfully in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, where the rich man and Lazarus are said to be inhabiting a place like this. Remember, Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in torment. This place called Hades is a place where there is conscious realization. It's a place where one can experience comfort on the one hand, also torment on the other. We notice in Revelation 20.13, this place called Hades delivered up its occupants. Hades was emptied. There will come a time when Hades will no longer have occupants for all of those spirits that have been sent there shall be removed. What shall they be doing? That's how we put this verse into its proper context. When we go to 1 Corinthians 15, we learn the following. Paul was asked a great question about the general resurrection. That is to say, what kind of body shall come forth on the morning of that great resurrection? Here we find the answer. The same body that was put into the earth is the body that shall come forth. That's what Paul said. Thus, on that great morning of resurrection, Hades shall be emptied. Those spirits shall leave and re-inhabit a body, provided incorruptibly for it. And inasmuch as that body shall then be the receptacle, then it shall be prepared to stand before God in judgment. That then is why the graves will be opened, and that then is why Hades will be emptied. This resurrection involves the emptying of both of them. For then this vast number of all who have ever lived shall then be in a spiritual form and ready to stand before God incorruptibly in judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53, we learn there that even those who happen to be alive at the time the Lord returns will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. They will have no advantage over those who've passed on. However, Paul says that all, both those that have been raised and those who were changed, will inhabit a body that is glorious and incorruptible. Never again shall it die. Never again shall it experience the things that this physical body we now have experiences. We see then that with 
the emptying of both the graves and Hades itself in verse 13, we quickly come to recognize that in verse number 14, what happens to all of this? Notice with me as we read this verse and make some comments on it as well. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We see now the final end of this situation concerning both Hades, as it again appears in the Greek text in verse 14, and also the mention of death. These things are no more. They, you see, were cast into the lake of fire. And isn't it interesting that the reference and name given is that of the second death? Perhaps some other observations would be worthy to make. When you and I read of texts like death and Hades cast into the lake of fire, that clearly indicates an absolute end to these things. No more death. Furthermore, there will be no longer a need for Hades because Hades is the place of disembodied spirits. And if those spirits will never again be apart from those bodies in which they are, then there could be no possible need for Hades anymore. And so it is that in this text they're cast into the lake of fire. Notice the certainty again of death and how all of that reaches a conclusion here. This does parallel so beautifully with Paul's remark in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't it? For might we remember, what is the last enemy that shall be defeated? What is the last enemy that shall be overcome? We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, that Christ must reign until the last enemy is destroyed. What is the last enemy? Paul leaves us not to doubt. He says it's death. And you and I now have the privilege of reading when that finality of death is over, when death shall be no more. Thus, putting this text together with that one, that means that Christ at this moment will hand over the kingdom to the Father, and thus they shall ever be with the Lord. We noted it in the lesson last Lord's Day evening, but how useful it should be to note it again. Christ is not coming back to begin His reign. He's coming back to terminate it. He's coming back to conclude it, to finish it. And this text absolutely indicates the very same point. Notice finally, as we notice verse 14 yet again, it reminds us of the certainty of this element of the second death. The word death simply means a separation. Again, in James 2:26, it's the separation of the body and the spirit. But notice, this is not a death like that one, for it's called the second death. That reminds us that this one is a death of a grand nature concerning God. Might we now ask, the most serious of all separations is to be separated from God. You and I can bear other kinds of separations. They may not be pleasant, but we can bear them. But to be separated finally and totally from God is a death worse than we can imagine. And that's the very fate awaiting these of whom we now read. For you see, God's not going to be in hell. Jesus is not going to be in hell, nor is the Holy Spirit. Those who are thus cast there in this lake of fire and brimstone, this place where the dragon, the beast, the devil, all these are, God's not there. This is thus the most absolute and final of all deaths. It is called the second death. May we thus remind ourselves over and over again, to not allow ourselves to be a part of those who shall have this fate, those who shall have this end. It's to be noted perhaps again 
this lake of fire is mentioned. We first saw it earlier in chapter 19, verse 20, where the beast was cast there. The false prophet was cast there. We saw it earlier in chapter 20, verse 10, the devil was cast there. We now notice that death and hell also are cast there. Many things are finding their way to this place, but they're not pleasant things. They're not favorable things. They're not joyous things. They're all things that have stood opposed to the work and power and jurisdiction of God and all things that have arrayed themselves in opposition to Him. It's perhaps interesting to consider yet another picture. This is an artist's rendition of the lake of fire. You can imagine the heat, the hotness, the terrible discomfort, the torment, the agony, and the anguish, all be descriptive of finding oneself in a boiling vat or boiling pot of that which was extraordinarily hot. Certainly we can understand Revelation does have its symbolic sections in many of them. But it is interesting that on many occasions in the Scriptures, not only Revelation, but certainly Jesus Himself spoke about a lake burning with unquenchable fire. A place described where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. A place of outer darkness where there is gnashing of teeth. That's the kind of description that's set before us about a place like this one. Though thus this may have some figurative elements in it, it's too risky to risk one's eternal salvation on going to a place like that. A lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Might we ask John who's going to be there? Is there anyone else besides the dragon, the beast, death and Hades? There's a very quick answer to that in verse 15. We read it earlier. Let's read that short verse again. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. John, what do you see right in a book? John saw that all those whose names were not in the book of life were cast into this lake burning with fire. This very same lake where the devil ended up. Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 25, 41 that there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. He called it hell. Here we're getting a description of the fullness of Gehenna. We now come to another one of those words that we should familiarize ourselves with perhaps. As the New Testament presents to us these various descriptive words, we noticed earlier the word hell in the King James is sometimes the Greek word Hades. Hades is only the place of disembodied spirits. It is not the final eternal abode of the unrighteous. However, there are other words that are used to describe it. That word's Gehenna. It means the valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M in the original Hebrew. You see, the description that Jesus gave of that comes directly from the ninth chapter of Mark. When Jesus was giving description about the nature of this eternal abode of the unrighteous, He tried to draw the description as closely as He could to the things with which they were familiar. Let me describe that as nearly as I might be able. Jerusalem, of course, was a rather vibrant city in the ancient day. And as such, it had a large population. And as with any city, it needed a place to throw its trash and its garbage and its refuse. That place for the city of Jerusalem was a valley situated just south of the city. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament days, it had been a place that was exceedingly unfavorable. So much so that various sacrifices were made there. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, more than once, when people were confused and sinful enough to even sacrifice their children alive, quite often the Valley of Hinnom was places where atrocious things like that took place. On other occasions, of course, it was the place where the garbage from Jerusalem was thrown rather directly. And as you can imagine, the carcasses of animals and the various blood sacrifices from the temple were cast there. And due to the rotting and deteriorating flesh, the stench was nearly unbearable. When a south wind blew and brought that smell toward Jerusalem, it was simply awful. Jesus said, I'm telling you, there is a place, and this is as close as I can describe it, you can imagine as the maggots and the worms would eat their way into the carcasses and flesh that was thrown there. No wonder Jesus said, the worm dieth not. No wonder as they kept the fires burning in the valley of Hinnom to consume the trash and the garbage and the refuse. Jesus said, there's a fire unquenchable in the place I'm talking about. We can see the parallels that Jesus noted between this valley of Hinnom and this place called Gehenna Hell Fire. But might we notice that these descriptive words of Jesus remind us again and again that this place of which we now read is eternal, no end in sight. May I suggest that when you and I are asked to bear unfavorable things upon earth, we can do it for a while. We can do it as long as we know there's an end. Take a trip to Vanderbilt sometime and visit the burn unit down there. It's almost unbearable to see these with 70, 80, 90% of their body burned and the skin has to be grafted upon it. But you know, as long as they know that there's coming a time that pain will be no more, they can bear it a while. Friend, there will be no end to hell. On the day that that great sentence is delivered, the day that there's no name found for me or for you or for others that we may know in that book of life, there's no second opportunity. There's never a time when perhaps the sentence shall be ended or pardoned or clemency will be granted. Though in our day and time, clemency might be granted or pardoned by a president or a governor to suspend a sentence and perhaps call it to its end. There shall never be a time when that will happen with Gehenna hellfire. It's eternal. Jesus described it in words like this in Matthew 25, 46. He said that those that were on his right went into everlasting life. Now note the word everlasting appears there indicating life without end in the blissful joy and presence of the eternal God of heaven. But in the very same verse he said those on the left were cast into eternal fire. Notice the same word everlasting on the one hand, eternal on the other. They both mean no end. They both, they both indicate that the thing under description is absolutely endless. Might we say then that if heaven is endless, so too is hell. If hell is endless, so too is heaven. Jesus used the word to describe each one. Thus, when we consider that this text before us now says that not only the devil and the beast and the false prophet and others, but even all those who have not their name written in the Lamb's book of life, shall be cast into the lake burning with fire and brimstone. You and I can perhaps remember being touched by various lessons and Bible studies through the years where the forcefulness of ideas like this were set forth. It's not the setting forth by a preacher per se. This is the very Word of God, isn't it? It is God saying this. 
It's not being mean upon your part or mine. When we encourage someone to think seriously about the eternal destination of their soul, it is not, in fact, being mean. It is being loving to encourage them to think seriously and urgently about the eternal fate that they shall face. Might we thus say that perhaps that same picture we saw earlier would be worthy to see again, a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. At this point, having looked upon the scene of chapter 20, closing with verse number 15, perhaps we can summarize the lesson tonight in a few words as follows. The day of judgment, how wonderful it shall be for some, for those who have made preparation and who have clothed themselves in the righteous garments and glorious goodness provided by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 20, we read about the very scene then when those clothed appropriately have blessing but those that are not clothed appropriately are cast out. Might you and I ask, how well are we clothed? Are we clothed in the righteous garments of the very blood of Jesus? At this point, we might well ask, in terms of this book of life, that seems the critical hinge, having one's name written there. Is your name there? Is my name written there? There's more than one song in our songbook that makes note of the book of life. I'd ask you as we close the lesson tonight to read the words of song number 112. My name is in the book of life. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. I rise above all doubt and strife and read my title clear. My name once stood with sinners lost and bore a painful record, but by His blood the Savior's crossed and placed it on His roll. Yet inward trouble often cast and shadow o'er my title. But now with full salvation blessed, praise God, it's ever clear. While others climb through worldly strife to carve a name of honor, high up in heaven's book of life, my name is written there. And then in the chorus, I know, I know my name is there. I know, I know my name is written there. Do you know your name is written there tonight? Are you absolutely sure of it? We each ought to be. There should be not the slightest doubt in our mind that our name is penned and etched in indelible ink in the Lamb's book of life. For if it is, we know the grandeur and glorious promise that awaits the faithful when they shall have that book opened and God shall say, Your name is here. But can you imagine the terror? The absolute knowledge of standing there that day and having God flip through the book, and your name's not here. Perhaps the Lord's statements earlier in Matthew 7 will be reminiscent of that point too, when He said, I never knew you. You see, we have opportunity for Him to know us, so that He'll put our name there. But even if we've stumbled and fallen and departed aside from Him, though He may have erased that name, He'll write it in again. Revelation 3 verses 1 to 5 reminds us of that this very night. If your name is not in that book of life, whether as an alien sinner or one who's fallen aside from the truth of the gospel, come back to that first love tonight or enter the fold for the first time in the wonderful watery grave of baptism. We, could, we would be happy to assist you in either of those ways. But tonight, if your name is not in the book of life, make certain to fix that event, to make a correction even now while together we stand and while we sing.